7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After negotiations with America, Turkey has agreed a ceasefire in northeastern Syria. But the deal is nothing but a win for Turkey. Tens of thousands of Kurds will be displaced, and America's role and image in the region will keep declining. And it's time we got into psychedelic drugs. At least, that's the idea of researchers who are looking to treat depression, anxiety, and the like. Patents are being handed out, startups are starting up. It's not a business trip, it's a trip business. First up, though. After a turbulent three months as Prime Minister, Britain's Boris Johnson may have allowed himself a moment of congratulation yesterday. Uh, I do think that this deal uh, represents uh, a very good deal both for the EU and for the UK. He successfully renegotiated Britain's withdrawal agreement with the European Union. And it's a a reasonable, fair outcome and reflects the uh, large amount of work that's been undertaken uh, by, by both sides. However, the deal still has to pass through Britain's fractured parliament, which will meet in a special session tomorrow. The trickiest parts of the negotiations were on the status of the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Mr. Johnson's Northern Irish allies, the Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, say they still won't support the deal. With the opposition Labour Party firmly against it, its success in Parliament is far from assured. Still, many of Mr. Johnson's critics didn't think he'd get this far. Uh, Boris Johnson was told he could not reopen the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May struck with the EU, but he's managed to persuade the EU to do that. He's managed to take out of the withdrawal agreement the hated backstop that was a sort of um, reserve arrangement for making sure that there was no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. John Peat is our Brexit editor, who's in Brussels to follow what could be a turning point in the tortuous Brexit negotiations. But he's done that by putting back into a deal a special arrangement for Northern Ireland on its own, which will keep Northern Ireland effectively in a customs union and regulatory alignment with the EU. That implies a border in the Irish Sea, which was something that Mrs May wanted to avoid. He's also, however, managed to insert a consent mechanism whereby the Northern Ireland Assembly can... Uh, get rid of this this special status if it wants to. So we, we have to concede then that, that Mr. Johnson has pulled off a minor miracle by getting this getting a deal this far, only by himself making concessions, I, I suppose. But what chance does it have of passing when he brings that, uh, brings that legislation home? Well, the big test for Boris Johnson's deal is indeed, can he get it through Parliament? Um, After all, Theresa May struck a a deal with the European Union, which she then failed three times to get through Parliament before she had to resign. Boris Johnson is going to try and do this 
on a, a rare Saturday session of Parliament that he's called specially to vote on his deal. And frankly, the arithmetic doesn't look very good because if he doesn't have any support from the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, he needs to win over something like 15 or 20 Labour MPs to back his deal in order for it to go through. Why would any of the opposition Labour Party MPs vote to, to, to save this deal? There is some pressure on all MPs, including Labour MPs, to, as to use Boris Johnson's favourite phrase, to get Brexit done. Ordinary voters, much of the media, are saying, look, for goodness sake, we've got another Brexit deal now, just get it through and then we can move on to other things. And quite a lot of Labour MPs represent constituencies that voted to leave the European Union. So those two things will concentrate minds in the Labour Party. On the other hand... It's hard for a Labour MP to defy the party whip, which is going to be to oppose Boris Johnson's deal shortly before an election. And it's very hard for any Labour MP to be seen as somebody who saved Boris Johnson, uh, rescued his deal and therefore gave him a political triumph. So you say that it's, it's unlikely to, to, to pass during this Saturday session. What happens if it doesn't? Well, under the terms of the Benn Act, a piece of legislation recently passed by Parliament, if no deal has been approved by Parliament by October the 19th, Boris Johnson is required to ask the European Union to give him more time to extend the, the current Brexit deadline of October 31st, probably to January 31st next year. And with Mr Johnson having shown his powers of negotiation in Brussels, what about his Northern Irish allies, the DUP? Is, is there any chance he could bring them around on this deal? There is going to be some pressure on the DUP. Um, they have said they're against the deal. They're against having a, a greater border controls and a harder border between in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and mainland Great Britain. Um, they're against the consent procedure um, that the European Union has offered because it does not give the DUP a veto over continuing this arrangement. But on the other hand, Northern Irish public opinion um, was strongly pro-Remain, doesn't want a no-deal Brexit that might lead to a hard border between North and South. And the DUP is conscious of that. So it will be under some pressure domestically in Belfast to support Boris Johnson's deal just to get this out of the way. I don't think, though, past experience suggests the DUP will move. They tend, they tend to take a position and stick pretty rigidly to it. As Britain's politicians debate the deal in London tomorrow, there'll be a long way from the towns and villages on the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But it's a hard-won piece there that's at the heart of their dilemma, as the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, stressed yesterday. What really matters are the people, the people of Northern Ireland and Ireland. What really matters is peace. The Brexit wranglings of the past three years have seen the EU drawn into the details of a peace deal that ended conflict in Northern Ireland more than 20 years ago. The Good Friday Agreement in 1998 came after years of fighting between mainly Catholic nationalists who hoped to see Northern Ireland as part of Ireland and mainly Protestant unionists who wanted it to be part of the United Kingdom. At a commemoration last year, the agreement's negotiators and today's politicians vowed to uphold it. The Good Friday Agreement is still seen as a beacon of light, of hope, in a world riven with war. And as a consequence, life on the ground has been transformed. Our only agenda is the Good Friday Agreement, the principle of consent, of peaceful politics, of democratic institutions, of reconciliation and cooperation. 
An open or soft border between the two EU countries, the UK and Ireland, was a key part of the Good Friday Agreement. It allowed Northern Ireland to remain in the UK, but people and goods to move easily across an invisible dividing line with no passport or customs checks. And it's in these border areas that public opinion seems at odds with the DUP. That party may want to avoid a border between the mainland and Northern Ireland, but the alternative prospect of a harder border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic makes people there nervous. When people think about a hard border in Northern Ireland, inevitably they think about the way it was in the past during the Troubles, which was to become a heavily securitized border, one in which many of the roads were blocked, and one which symbolized the division between the UK and Ireland in a very real way. Katie Hayward is a political sociologist at Queen's University Belfast who's been looking at Brexit. People's views about Brexit are very much informed by the idea that a hard border would be a backward step for the peace process. So the fact that it is open and invisible and one of the most integrated border regions in the world is something that's very cherished and seen as a symbol of the success of the peace process. So when people anticipate Brexit, particularly those living in the border region, they see a hard border, any risk of delays, any friction in movement across the border as being uh, not just inconvenient, but also significant for the peace itself. Ms. Hayward has been working on a survey, asking people in areas on both sides of the border what they think about possible changes. One thing that's very striking is the emotional language used. People talk about it as being... Uh, devastating and heartbreaking and a sense of brokenness and fear about the future. So, of course, if they're living in the border region, many of them cross the border several times a day, a family on the other side of the border, their lives are quite cross-border, if, if you like, and they're worried about the practical implications of Brexit, but also the sense that if there is change to that, that it would give rise ultimately to a return to conflict and at least to community tensions. This very much permeates their sense of anxiety about Brexit and its impact on their, on their lives, and in particular what Brexit means for the border. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. A week after its forces advanced into northeastern Syria, Turkey has agreed to a five-day ceasefire. That will allow Kurdish-led troops to escape a border region that Turkey has been aggressively attacking, a region it wants to turn into a so-called safe zone. The agreement came after a long meeting between Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and America's Vice President Mike Pence, who'd been dispatched by President Donald Trump. And it was unconventional what I did. I said, they're going to have to fight a little while. Sometimes you have to let them fight a little while. Then people find out how tough the fighting is. He's got, like two kids in a lot, you got to let them fight and then you pull them apart. 
The truce has done little to assuage those critical of Mr. Trump's decision to withdraw American troops that had been preventing the Turkish incursion and abandoning Kurdish allies who'd helped against Islamic State. That criticism came from both sides of the aisle, including from Republican senators such as Mitt Romney. The announcement today is being portrayed as a victory. It is far from a victory. Further, the ceasefire does not change the fact that America has abandoned an ally. Their homes have been burned and their families have been torn apart. The administration's belated diplomatic efforts have stopped the fighting, for now. But that will do little to burnish America's image. And it's still worse for the tens of thousands of Kurds who will be displaced. In fact, only one party to the negotiations seems to have come out well. I think Mr. Erdogan and all of Turkey sees this as a win, almost unmitigated success for the Turkish side. Piotr Zalebski is our Turkey correspondent. Turkish foreign minister came out right after the meeting between Vice President Pence and uh, Mr. Erdogan and their respective delegation to say that Turkey got exactly what it wanted out of the ceasefire deal. Um, and that seems to be the case. Well, what, what is in that deal? What are the terms of the ceasefire? So, first of all, Turkey will suspend its offensive for 120 hours, so um, about just over five days. In the meantime, uh, the Kurdish fighters, known as the YPG, will withdraw to at least 30 kilometers from the border. At the same time, the United States uh, will shelve the sanctions and I should say the largely meaningless sanctions it had imposed against Mr. Erdogan and his government on October 15th. Then following that 120-hour period, a permanent truce would uh, kick in, and the Kurds would also be expected to hand in the heavy weapons they received from America to fight Islamic State. So essentially the, the Kurds are kicked out of this border area or or permitted to leave, I suppose I should say, um, and that then amounts to a, a full-on land grab by Turkey on, on Syrian territory, right? Well, Turkey denies that uh, this is a land grab. Uh, Turkey likes to describe this as a safe zone, and this is going to be an area running down the length of the, the Syrian-Turkish border that uh, will be controlled by the Turkish army and the Syrian militias that have fought alongside it. And Turkey still seems to hope that this area might become a magnet for um, at least some, and uh, we've heard figures of about 2 million, of the 4 million refugees inside Turkey's borders, uh, which uh, unfortunately is a pretty preposterous idea. But it was really only a Turkish and an American delegation at the table yesterday. I mean, certainly the uh, the, the Kurds have a stake in this. Certainly the, the, the Russian-backed Syrian forces have a stake in this. What does this mean for them? How will they be viewing this? The Kurds certainly have a huge stake in this, uh, but they do not seem to have been consulted or they um, have been presented with a fait accompli by their American allies. As far as the Russians are concerned, well, that's a negotiation that is yet to be had. And Mr. Erdogan will be heading to Russia on Tuesday to discuss the safe zone plan with Mr. Putin. And in fact, the safe zone plan is not likely to get off the ground without a green light from Russia. 
But it it seems, once again, that the the Kurds have been sort of hung out to dry. I mean, this won't do anything to to mitigate the sense of betrayal they might have felt when America first pulled out. Well, the only good news for the Kurds is that the uh, bloodshed will stop, at least for the uh, time being. So the Kurds have lost uh, hundreds of fighters and uh, dozens of uh, civilians to Turkish airstrikes and shelling. And they might at least have some time to catch their breath. But their dream of autonomy in northern Syria is entirely gone as a result of the Turkish intervention. The YPG, assuming it decides to follow the conditions of the ceasefire, uh, will withdraw from the length of the border, and that will only leave civilians inside that area. How those civilians, uh, Kurdish civilians, feel about being governed by Turkey and the militias that uh, serve as its proxies in the region um, ought to be clear. And, and how much faith do you have that this, this ceasefire, as described, will hold? What, what, what are the obstacles to it? On paper, uh, once the uh, 120 hours expire, and once uh, the Kurds meet all of the conditions of this ceasefire, a permanent truce um, will take hold. In practice, this is going to be harder than it seems on paper. First of all, there's still no guarantee that the Kurds will withdraw from all of the areas Turkey would like to see them withdraw from. There is no guarantee that they will disarm as the agreement calls on them to do. And there's no guarantee that the U.S. will be able to monitor the implementation of the ceasefire and to persuade the Kurds to accept its terms. On top of that, the ball right now seems to lie in Moscow's court and in uh, Damascus. So both Russian and regime forces have begun entering some Kurdish areas in the northeast at the invitation of the Kurds, who have decided to trade their limited autonomy for uh, Russian and regime protection. That process might continue, and that might in fact be the biggest obstacle in the coming days and weeks to a Turkish safe zone in northeast Syria. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on. They used to be a hobby just for tie-dyed psychonauts. Psychedelic drugs can cause vivid hallucinations and disrupt thought patterns. And now, because of that, more and more researchers are turning to them to treat ailments such as depression and anxiety. Patients would take a dose under medical supervision and have therapy before and after to discuss the experience. Trials are just beginning, but they're gaining interest and startups are popping up to develop the nascent field. A lot of companies are looking at psychedelics as a way to treat mental health issues. Shreema Pidi writes about business and finance for The Economist. There has been a growth in the number of cases related to depression, anxiety, as well as addiction. So is the idea here to, to more or less follow in the path of what's happened with, with cannabis and the sort of slow relaxation of, of regulation there? There has been debate around that, actually. So the thing about cannabis is that a user can take it at the convenience of their own home. So this allowed a lot of business potential for people to service cannabis. However, with psychedelics, because it's still illegal, it will mostly be serviced within medical clinics as of now. And so I think the industry for where psychedelics can go into the future would look very different from the cannabis market. 
there will be opportunities for a lot of companies to be a part of the operational facility of actually administering psychedelics. So beyond just clinics, there will be places where you can have retreat sessions or, for example, therapists that are able to check in on you after you had a dosing session. And then along with that, tech companies may also play an important role uh, in actually detecting relapses. For example, a phone is useful to understand the type of language that you're using. So be able to detect if you have depressive thoughts or that you have a higher tendency of a relapse. And so tech companies are also trying to see if there might be a wellness game that they can take advantage of, for example, Calm or Headspace, which are companies that a lot of users now use across America and Europe. And, and what about safety? Are there any dangers involved in any of this? So there are a few dangers involved with psychedelics. People might experience bad trips, which is why there has been a lot of federal regulation around it and just a little bit of a anxiety over actually administering psychedelics to the public. But where companies see and where research universities see potential is that they want psychedelics to be primarily administered with clinicians, with therapists, and at medical clinics themselves. And so they have licenses or ways to be able to actually make sure that they are able to take care of the patient, for example, after a dosing session. And these sessions could last a whole day where they have check-ins before the session itself, also after the session, so that you are able to have these check-ins and be able to make sure that your mental health is where it needs to be. So the therapeutic benefits of, of psychedelics have been talked about for decades. Why is there all this interest now? The reason behind a lot of the interest now is that one company in particular, Compass Pathways, was able to secure FDA approval to move forward with clinical trials that allow them to test psilocybin, which is the main component of magic mushrooms, to see if there is potential for curing or at least mitigating depression, anxiety, or uh, even addiction. And so I think that company has been at the forefront of this space, but there are a number of other companies that have also been trying to experiment with other components of psychedelics to see if there's potential for opiate addiction, depression, and anxiety, as I mentioned before. But what we saw in the cannabis story is that the, the removal of that stigma in a clinical setting has led to a kind of broader removal of stigma and inevitably a move to, to recreational use. Do you think this is the, the thin end of a wedge like that for psychedelics? There is potential for that as well. I think that the cannabis movement gives some background for where administrators within the psychedelic space want to move forward. But I think that what's different about psychedelics in particular is that a lot of the people leading the movement in the business space and even in the research space don't actually want it to be a recreational drug because I think that they understand that there are potentially negative side effects that need to be checked by therapists, for example. Christian Angermeyer, who is the founder of Atai Life Sciences, which primarily invests in a lot of these biotech startups, actually does not want it to be decriminalized because I think that allows for a lot of potential for people to misuse psychedelics. So with or without the interest and participation of Big Pharma, this does seem to be making it out into the public domain. I've spoken to a few people in the field, both investors and executives, and it looks as though there's a general feeling that psychedelics will be in the market within five to ten years, barring any drawbacks or regulatory issues. Thank you very much for your time, Sri. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Before we go, a fond farewell to Cheryl Brumley, an editor of the show without whom it wouldn't exist. We wish her all the very best. As ever, if you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday.
Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.